This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. In today's podcast, we discuss the Ebola crisis in West Africa and discover why research is important not only to tackle the current emergency, but as a tool to prevent future health crises. We're dealing with a health crisis in fragile states, uh, in fragile health systems, and we think that research has an important role to play here. We travel to Maputo, capital of Mozambique, to discover how African universities joined efforts to foster a new generation of agricultural scientists. The universities needed to be better organized and have a platform where they could come together and share lessons and take collective actions. In a discussion with Camilla Toulmin, director of the IIED, we discover why to feed the world there's no need to produce more food and why to tackle inequality we first need to spot and get rid of damaging policies. And we'll be on safari in Tanzania with Kazianowski. Kaz and colleagues from the USAID-sponsored Partnerships for Enhanced Engagement in Research Programme, or PEER, visited a Maasai community outside Arusha. That was the sound of Maasai cattle going out to graze. But they weren't so interested in the cattle, traditionally a Maasai man's concern. No, they were going to see a project which is having a positive impact on Maasai women's lives. Hear more from Kaz and his colleagues among the Maasai women of northern Tanzania later in the podcast. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast. I'm John Eskam with this month's latest news and views on science and global development. In the studio with me is multimedia producer Lou Del Bello. Hello there, Lou. Hello, John. First on our podcast, one of the biggest humanitarian threats of recent years. Well, those are the voices of doctors in Gwekadu in Guinea, where the so-called patient Zero, a two-year-old boy who died in December 2013, is believed to have started the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. The crisis has been declared an international emergency by the World Health Organization. In the words of Bruce Aylward, Assistant Director General at WHO, This is not an issue of three countries. It is not a West African issue or an African issue. This is a global health security issue, I think, as most are aware. Also, in terms of the response, there are simply not the resources in these countries, in one continent, let alone uh, the African continent, to deal with this. This needs a much, much larger global um, mobilization. So far, at least 1,500 people have died from the disease, with more than 3,000 reported cases. There is currently no cure for the disease, although a panel of WHO experts has declared the use of experimental treatments as ethical in the current situation. In particular, one serum called ZMAP was given to two US aid workers and three African health workers in Liberia. Lou, can you explain really what ZMAP is? ZMAP involves antibodies 
but it's not a vaccine. That's why it can work effectively even after the infection has started. And how does that work? Well, Ebola virus is a simple one with only seven genes. The gene that allows the virus to attach to human cells is called Ebola glycoprotein. Antibodies would normally stick to the protein and block infection of new cells. But Ebola suppresses the immune system and the antibody response comes too late for the patients. ZMAP is designed to help the immune system by providing effective antibodies that can be injected into the bloodstream of infected subjects. The antibodies were first produced in mice and the genes were inserted into cells from a tobacco plant that can be grown easily and in large quantity. And we know that in the first human trial, while the two American doctors survived, a Liberian doctor who received the drug actually died. Yes, we still know very little about the effectiveness and potential side effects of ZMAP and other experimental treatments, so more research is definitely needed, along with humanitarian response. Now, Ebola is indeed a scientific challenge as well as a humanitarian one. In the UK, the Wellcome Trust and the Department for International Development have launched an emergency Ebola initiative to fund research on the development of experimental drugs and vaccines. Reporter Anand Jagatia talked to Marta Tufe, International Activities Advisor at the Wellcome Trust, to find out more. So the Wellcome Trust has announced a multi-million pound funding initiative for emergency research into Ebola. Before we talk about that, what's the current state of the Ebola crisis? Ebola is claiming a large number of lives. The region that is currently affected is West Africa. It is a region where there have been war-torn communities, where the health systems are weak at best, and where there has been a lot of mistrust that has been built around the health system. We're dealing with a health crisis in fragile states, uh, in fragile health systems, and we think that research has an important role to play here. So what is the research initiative that has been announced? We have launched a call to try and determine which new approaches can be supported to quickly try and treat the disease, try and control the disease, and try and inform the future control of epidemics. We're trying to fast-track the applications that come in. So that means that we are trying to speed up our internal processes in selecting and reviewing applications and making sure that we are making decisions quickly enough so that they can have an impact during the current outbreak. Why is uh, research needed uh, at this time? So it's extremely important to do research during the current outbreak. Um, While we can test uh, safety of drugs and vaccines that are currently in the pipeline, in a healthy volunteers anywhere in the world, we can only assess the efficacy of those um, treatments in uh, the affected countries with the consent uh, of the individuals and communities affected. So therefore, it's very important that the research is carried out along the side of this outbreak. We don't know when Ebola strikes, so we have very few limited opportunities to do this. Um, prior to this um, this outbreak, Uh, Uganda held the record for the largest Ebola outbreak. Had we acted at the time, uh, we might not be in the situation that we're in now. Can you tell me a little bit more about the kinds of research that you're hoping to fund with this drive? Yes, so we are looking at uh, drugs and vaccines that are uh, ready to to go into humans. Um, So where there is some uh, non-human primate data available that can inform the 
current outbreak, but also future epidemics. But we're also interested in, in looking at uh, epidemiology as well in terms of understanding uh, how the disease is transmitted, what factors are at play currently in the West African region that are making this outbreak uh, uh, uncontrollable, uh, what are the social aspects, what drives community to seek healthcare, what leads uh, to a lack of trust, what what um, what are the health systems doing um, that they could improve on. So a, a wide range of research from, from basic research into therapeutics and vaccines to social aspects and health-seeking behavior. Let's talk a bit about ethics. So um, the ethical debates in relation to this crisis seem to be centered around the use of experimental treatment. So can you tell me a little bit more about the kind of ethical problems that have been brought up during the course of this crisis? Well, ethics have to be at the heart of uh, research in any experimental intervention. And there needs to be transparency on all aspects of care, uh, informed consent, freedom of choice, confidentiality, respect of the person, preservation of dignity and involvement of the community. If you look at the current state in um, in Liberia, where they have quarantined a certain community and there's been a lot of violence and, and the involvement of tear gas, that is not something that uh, we in the public health community see as, um, as ethical. Um, there has to be the trust of the community to ensure that um, they understand why they are being quarantined and what the, the issues at play are here. In terms of testing experimental treatments, um, there you're dealing with a very vulnerable population where the only other likely outcome is death um, and therefore uh, you need to really try to understand if the individual is in a position to give informed consent. Um, so these are some, some of the examples of, of the types of ethical issues that one needs to consider. And what about um, ethical considerations concerning the distribution of these treatments? So the issue is that uh, when we have limited doses of an available treatment, uh, there needs to be a decision in terms of who is going to receive that treatment. But we also feel it's very important that there is a research data collected as much as possible um, if uh, these uh, treatments are distributed so that we can help inform uh, the development of, of future treatments. If you look at the current uh, distribution of uh, ZMAP, there's very little data that has been collected in terms of whether it's being efficacious or not. Um, so we feel it's unethical not to collect research data when distributing these treatments. Well, that was Marta Tufe, International Activities Advisor at the Wellcome Trust, speaking with Anand Jagatia. The Ebola Initiative will be accepting proposals from researchers worldwide until the 8th of September. The proposals will be reviewed as quickly as possible so research can begin immediately with up to £6.5 million available. With this initiative, scientists are hoping to learn from the current outbreak by working in the field and hopefully they'll be able to use new knowledge to improve response in case of future outbreaks. From west to southeast Africa now, we've travelled to Maputo in Mozambique to attend the biennial conference of the consortium RUFORUM, which unites 42 member universities under the common goal of transforming African tertiary agricultural education. RUFORUM represents one of the success stories that we've been reporting on as part of our spotlight on African tertiary education. We've been looking at how fostering research can have an impact on development. 
young researchers can drive scientific innovation and design solutions for new problems, but science can also empower women and enable local economies to thrive. In particular, Ruforum aims at improving the communication between the academic world and smallholder African farmers, what they call impact-oriented research. Sidev.net reporter John Spool interviewed Adipala Ekwamu, professor at Makarere University in Kampala in Uganda. He's executive secretary of Ruforum. Now, Ruforum is an initiative by African University vice-chancellors to pull their efforts together so that uh, the African universities are more engaged in the development agenda of the continent and more specifically to work together to, to increase access to high quality education in the field of postgraduate studies in the agricultural science fields. And why was there a need for a reform? The universities needed to be better organized and have a platform where they could come together and share lessons and take collective actions. The members of Ruforum recognise the impact of research networks not only as a tool to strengthen scientific capacity, but also as a tool to battle brain drain. The African universities recognised that individually they had certain capacities and competences, but collectively they could be able to do a better job taking advantages of the individual competences from each university and then pulling this to make sure that we could produce regional public goods. Uh, specifically in terms of increasing access to high-quality postgraduate training programs. Over the, the last 10 years, we, for example, we have trained about 1,300 postgraduate students, and 94% of all these graduates, they are back working within the national countries. They, they have not left the region. So they are already there in the research systems. Some have gone into government. Some have gone into the private sector. Many have gone back to, to, to the faculties. Which was the original idea? Can we restrengthen the university capacity to train for Africa? within Africa. So we have now programs which are competitive and people are now looking at them as first choice programs. It's no longer that African government must send their students solely out. We need some still to go out, but now they have pro quality programs for building their capacity for their countries. Well, that was Adipala Ekwamu, Executive Director of Ruforum, speaking to Sidev.net reporter John Spall. And during his trip, John also spoke to Patrick O'Corry the principal scientist at the International Crop Research Institute for the semi-arid tropics. His experience with the forum started almost 10 years ago. Patrick explained that the challenges for such an ambitious program were significant. In particular, he identified three main issues. We had to creatively design programs that responded to new and future needs. That was new because it had not been done before. Number two, we needed some level of infrastructure to implement uh, teaching and research in some new areas. At that time, ten years more than 10 years ago, biotechnology was a new thing in Africa. And so the cost of running and establishing such programs was going to be high. The third thing we faced was we needed women. By mandate, we needed... 30 to 40 percent of our intake to be women and there were very few women interested in PhD at that time and the number is still a problem to this day. Despite the problems that still persist and new challenges for African science, 
a change in the mindset of scientists and academics in the continent is already happening. Uh, ten years ago, just before that, uh, there was political um, will changing in Africa to develop the continent. So the CADAPO, the Comprehensive Africa De Agriculture Development Program, was launched where the leaders agreed to put 10% of their budget per year on agriculture. Within the same period, we have seen our continent, our leaders, committed to cutting down uh, problems that have been in Africa forever. They committed themselves to cut down hunger. They committed themselves to reduce, to improve health and access to education. So all these are positive things that have happened. They have put in place uh, policies that have allowed our economies to thrive, macroeconomic policies. So a lot of changes are happening in Africa. They are positive, but they are just the initial step. Africa is several miles behind the rest of the world, but is making the first steps in the right direction. And what we want is or request is the rest of the world to partner with us, to leave behind for future posterity a world better than the Africa we've all found. That was Patrick Akori, Principal Scientist at the International Crop Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics, speaking with SciDev.net correspondent John Spall. Well, the next step for Ruforum will be to involve not only farmers and academia, but also governments in an effort to create a platform for policy advocacy. The ultimate goal is to mobilise the economic and human resources needed to keep up with the needs of a fast-developing Africa. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Eskom. The appropriately named Tanzanian NGO Maasai Stoves and Solar has been involved in changing the interiors of traditional Maasai homes, the domain of Maasai women and young children who have to endure acrid smoke from open indoor cooking fires and darkness. The traditional Maasai home has mud walls, a thatched roof and no windows for light or ventilation. The Maasai Stoves and Solar project has established a strong relationship with Maasai women who look after the day-to-day -day economy of Maasai villages, while the Maasai men travel far afield with their cattle in what is a beautiful but harsh, dry landscape. The women have learned how to construct clean stoves and are now interested in teaching others how to do the same, as well as taking on board new technologies such as solar electricity. Kazianowski and colleagues from the peer program visited some of the villages where the project is being rolled out. Judging by the singing we heard earlier, they weren't in for a dull time. As you'll hear, not everybody was convinced that the project is viable, especially since it involves investment from the women themselves. Kaz asked Kizioki Moitiko, the project manager, to take him inside one of the Maasai household, which now sports a chimney and solar panel on its thatched roof. So where are we at the moment? We are in the house with our stove. We call it Maasai stove. This mama is one of the stove experts in this village and uh, she got the money to buy a stove by having the money she was gaining 
by installing other people's stove. Yeah. Can you just describe the stove for me quickly? Yeah, um, this stove has two main parts. It has a chimney and it has a part we call a firebox. Chimney is very crucial for these Maasai homes because it detects smoke outside the house compared to this three stone fire. Take smoke out of the house 95% if you compare to the three stone fire. And um, you can see uh, how good it is. Um, and uh, she can use any fuel. She can use charcoal. She can, you see there that are uh, corn. How you call those things? Husks. Husks. That is corn husk. She's using with little wood to cook uh, her food, her tea. And then um, you see that they pass for the smoke to get out of the house. And uh, if you see, the smoke is coming forward instead of going straight to the chimney. We invented that hole because, you know, smoke is very smart to always try to find a place to escape. So it has to be tricky while is getting confused. <laughs> That's how we get it. It is efficient. Okay. So it's a fuel-efficient stove and it's a smoke-less stove. And then this house also has a solar panel, I noticed, on the yes. uh, on the roof. Yes. So she's really plugging into new technology. Absolutely. Um, she's now uh, enjoying new technology. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I heard the word sceptical. <laughs> um, what were you sceptical about? Yeah, about the, the the metal, because I thought it it will be too too expensive to to the community. The the stove is made from the metal shit, so I, w I was afraid of you know it will be too too expensive. But when I ask the communities, they're happy, and so many communities are using it. What was your impression of the inside of the house? I think it is the same in Ethiopia. Is so it similar? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think these technologies transferable to Ethiopia? Uh, no, I don't think so because I think the, the farmers there they are not willing to pay you know, twenty dollar to such technology. So the price <laughs> Rachel, what do you think? So the price will have to come down. Is that what you're saying? But also, there's a difference in the type of stove, right? Because in Ethiopia, the stoves are bigger and they tend to be outside of the home. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, maybe we need some adaptation of technology. In order for, yeah, w yeah I mean, would yeah, you say? Because yeah. he's working on, or starting to think about anyway, potential cook stove project. Yeah, but, but li linking, uh, trying to link with uh, biogas, not, you know, using uh, the woods. Is that because wood is in short supply? Yeah, and you can't find <laughs> woods, and it is de degrading the land. So we are thinking there are, there are a lot of wastes from households, so constructing a biogas, and fitting the biogas to the traditional cooking stove might be might be good. Can you introduce yourself and say who you are <laughs> and what you do? Okay. I'm uh, Sefu Admasu from Bahadar University, uh, director of School of Civil and Water Source Engineering, and by, by profession I'm a hydrologist. A hydrologist? Yeah. But you're interested in stoves as well? Uh, no, I'm working with, with colleagues. Because, you know, the, the biogas has some, some interesting uh, issue. Uh, one of the, the limiting factor for uh, the biogas you not know, to be uptaken by the, by the community is the availability of water. So you know I'm I'm pushing 
those professionals to use less water because you know communities are not getting water for domestic use but we are we are asking them you know to fish water for biogas so it's good you know to to add a little bit you know change the biodigester to use less water or probably or even you know with with dry dry digestion but are you impressed by what you're seeing here yes so very much yeah. uh when i compared it to utopia most of the time with regard to technologies you know it, it is main main dominated and when it comes to even to to the rural people it is men who are uh, managing the technologies but here i'm seeing women are involved and i think this will, this, this will make it you know sustainable to use because they are the one who are cooking the food for the household Kazyanovsky enjoying the music with the women of Arusha in northern Tanzania. This year, the International Institute for Environment and Development, the IIED, launched its new five-year strategy. It's a new roadmap focusing on policy implementation and development. The IED describes itself as a think-and-do tank, as it connects research and practical actions through policy for development. Lou, can you tell us more about their strategy and why all this matters? Well, when thinking about policy making, we normally focus on what should be done to make things better. So for example, when it comes to feed the poor, we think that producing more food is a good thing. But the IIED makes a different point. The focus should be on policies that seem to be designed to enforce inequality. And we shouldn't try to produce more food because this is not going to benefit the poor anyway. Now this sounds very pessimistic. Uh, Surely there must be a brighter side to all of this. Well, that's what I wanted to discover. I sat down with Camilla Tulmin, director of the IIED, to see if and how getting rid of what doesn't work might create room to build real change. Here's what I found. So reading through your strategy, I found a couple of points that might seem counterintuitive. For example, you are aiming to put a spotlight on policies that aggravate poverty and inequality. So can you give us an example of, of a set of policies that that are at the moment aggravating poverty and inequality? Well, indeed. I mean, policy design depends very much on the politics of the country concerned. Much policy is either blind to the needs of the poor or positively damaging to their interests. So if you take issues around tax, at the moment, rich people and rich companies are much better able to escape paying tax Another example is that uh, city governments tend to ignore completely the poorer half of their population um, who tend to live in much more vulnerable areas that are exposed to flooding and a whole variety of other environmental hazards. If anything, city governments tend to try and move those people out of those areas and put them miles out on the outskirts of town. Do you think this is the case, for example, when it comes to climate negotiations and climate regulations in government, but also at an international level? I think it's very much the case that um, much of the climate negotiations are being driven by very powerful 
countries and uh, corporate interests that are slowing down that process of change. So, for example, um, if you look at the top 10 companies in the world, six of them are oil and gas companies, so very much embedded in the energy and fossil fuel interests of the 20th century. In your strategy, you say that uh, production, increasing the production of food, is not necessarily going to be good for feeding the increasing population that's going to reach about 9 billion people by 2050. So can you expand on that? What we're saying here is that there's been a tendency to say, okay, well, we've got to increase production by 50 or 100% in order to feed the poor, without recognising that actually today we produce enough food to feed the poor, but we're not doing it. So production, production increases by themselves are not nearly enough to ensure that the poor will be fed. For countries with a rural economy, agriculture is a major factor, not only for food security, but also for the general economy. So I imagine water management is an important factor. Do you have any programs in place for water management, or do you have any ideas that you want to put forward? In the field of water management, we're working particularly in West Africa along the uh, the the Niger River. It's a water-stressed area in which uh, climate change is making even more uncertain the amount of, of water that's going to be available. So people have been saying, well, irrigation is obviously the answer. Uh, build a dam, you'll get assured irrigation water that you can use for agriculture and also water that you can use for energy generation. So what we've been doing there is looking at the experience of these big dams over the last 20 years and saying, well, dams that were built 20 years ago, did they in fact live up to their promises? Um, what's the difference between what was expected and how they've actually performed? And how can you use lessons from that experience to make sure that these new dams address many of these difficulties uh, right now so do you think there is a competition between energy and food when it comes to the use of water resources or they can work together? I think they can work together. I mean, obviously there's, there's some um, competition between the two in that you can choose either to use that water to drive turbines to generate electricity or you can divert it off to um, irrigated agriculture. But um, through careful planning and timing of those different water flows, I think it's relatively uh, complementary. So, Lou, what struck me in Camilla's words there is a focus on international agreements for the future. For example, in the management of transboundary water resources, but also in climate change adaptation. Well, international governance and science diplomacy are among the greatest challenges of our time because economic and environmental issues are now global. This month on CIDEVNET, we talk about the case of the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam, which will rise on the Blue Nile and produce enough electricity to power a whole region. There are still many unanswered questions about this dam, aren't there? For example, who has a say on the power plant management? Mm. Um, who holds the primary rights on the water of transboundary rivers? These sorts of things. And ultimately, 
Is energy more important than water? Though there is still little clarity among the governments involved, I try to shed light on this and other questions in the radio doc that you can find on our homepage today. And another platform to discuss the relationship between energy and water will be the World Water Week, taking place from the 1st of September until the 5th in Stockholm. And Lou, you'll be reporting from there, right? Yes, and I'm quite excited about that, because World Water Week is really a unique event. The conference will bring together more than 200 organisations to discuss the water, energy and food security nexus and its impacts on development. Well, last year the participants concluded that we needed a more systematic approach to these problems. We can't tackle them singularly as if they were disconnected from other natural, social and economic systems. And water is not only connected to food and energy, but also to issues like conflict, global finance or sanitation, just to name a few. For example, 2.6 billion people, a third of the world population, currently don't have access to improved sanitation, and this is going to get worse as cities in developing countries are growing rapidly. And this week, Lou will be casting a critical eye on the proposals being discussed at the conference. Well, that's all for this month's podcast. From me, John Eskam. And from me, Lou Del Bello. You can find more of our news and views on science and global developments on SciDev.net. And stay connected through our social network and read our blogs if you want to follow the World Water Week from today, the 1st of September, to the 5th of the month. Until next time, from both of us, it's goodbye.